we leave the church building. Uh, to love not the world. And, and there brings about this question, and we're going to answer this today as well. Well, didn't for God so love the world? So aren't we supposed to love the world? We're going to see what that really means to love the world, to not love the world. We're going to see what that phrase means, how we're to actually live in this world. And I believe that God's going to help us today to get a hold of this. Now, many of us would be sitting here and we say, well, we've read the, these verses a million times. We might even have these verses memorized. We might know exactly uh, what this means. And we look at the world and we go, well, I don't love the world. I'm looking, looking forward to heaven. But sometimes our life does betray what we think. And so I want to read here verses 15 and 17 through 17. It says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's black and white there. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away in the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. There are both some strong warnings here. John is up to this point so far has not gone through and given you this sort of gray mishmash of confusion, wondering, well, what does he really mean there? He's laid it out as clear as day, right? It's been black or white. It's been, if you say you're in the light, but you are walking in darkness, then you don't even have the light and you don't know God, right? He, he's, he's quite the harsh, rough preacher here. He, he has not pulled any punches. He is not trying to lighten the blow. He's just putting it out there. And today, I would say that you and I who have known and walked with the Lord still yet need, verse 15, to love not the world. The sad reality is that we are living in a world where the church unfortunately mirrors the world more than it does the Word, where the church conforms to the things of the world and not the things of the Word. We are living in a day and an age where unfortunately those who claim to know Christ have more of an affection for the things and the people and the things that hold us down in the world, then we do the Word. Now we say, well, you've said that three times in a row now. Why is that? It's because we love this world far too much. He says, first of all, not a suggestion, but as a command, love not the world. This would be like as you're a young kid and you get told, don't touch the cookies, let alone eat the cookies that are in the cookie jar. Makes sense, right? Your mom never said, hey, I, I don't know, you should maybe think about not doing it, you know, consider the implications if you were to reach in the cookie jar, you might get in trouble, you might break the jar, you might hurt yourself. No, he's, mom said, you better, t if you touch that cookie, let alone the cookie jar, don't even look at the countertops, don't even be in the kitchen, get, get out, right? It was a command. There was no beating around the bush, there was no trying to let it, let's make our own decision or figure out what's best. He comes out and says, love not the world. To love not the world. First of all, I want to give you two things that you'll see in your little pamphlet, booklet, whatever these things are. I don't remember. First of all, what they are not. What it means that it is not. It is not referencing the created world because it is the created world that points us to the fact that there is indeed a creator. I have no problem. I don't believe that the scripture tells us that we're not to love or to even appreciate the beauty of the world. Why? Because the beauty of the world points us to the beauty of the Creator. This morning, I love every morning, the little neighborhood we live in, I love it. We're close to church, we're close to everything, right? We're in the middle of it all, 
the hustle and bustle of the big city, <laughs> right? Uh, I'm telling you, it's getting crazy. They're going to have to put a stoplight in front of my house. It's so bad, but uh, we take us up to four stoplights for the whole town. But um, I, I love to take my dog for a walk first thing in the morning, about 6.45, 7 o'clock, and get to first start to see the sun come up and starting to see everything come alive. Normally, we walk out of the front door, a deer runs away from eating our acorns and everything else, and love to watch it all come together. You know, I don't love the exercise part, but it's a part of it, and you, you see the, the beauty of it. You see the sunrise, you see the colors of the sky, and you wonder, how does that even happen? How does it even get there? And scientists could certainly try to, their best to explain scientifically how, well, when the sun rays hit the blue sky of the atmosphere, and then the pressures and the gases mix, they create purple and pinks and blues, and I would love to make it much simpler. The God of heaven paints that for me every morning. If you don't wake up in time to see it, it, well, he painted it for you too, you just don't appreciate it, I guess, like the rest of us. You might be a sunset kind of person. I like them both, right? It means you made it through the day, but we're reminded, and we should certainly appreciate that. So it does not mean when he says, love not the world, don't appreciate the mountains or the valleys or the hills or the trees or the, the life that's here or the breathtaking uh, sunrises and sunsets. Nor is he, uh, is adver- uh, number two here, is not referencing, love not the world, is not referencing mankind. For even God loves sinful man enough to send his son, Jesus. How do we know? Well, what's the first verse you probably memorize as a, as a young kid, right? John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Loved the world. Yet we know this, that according to Romans 5.8, that and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How is it that God loves us? Because he's God. He has a love that goes beyond measure. He has a love that goes beyond comprehension. He has a love that is able to love those who are unlovable and those who certainly do not deserve love. He, he loves those who even in the midst of him pouring out his love towards them, still yet sin and hate him. It's an unfathomable kind of self-sacrificing love. Furthermore, it is referencing, though, the world system, belief, and attitude toward God. There are two kingdoms, two spiritual kingdoms, if you will. Now, we know that physically you can look on a map or a globe or whatever and see all the different uh, places and kingdoms or nations and countries, continents, counties, cities, towns, villages, houses, homes, neighborhoods, right? See, all the way down the line. But there are two kingdoms in the world. It is the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of light, or the kingdom of the world, or the kingdom of the word. There is no in-between places. You are either of the world or you are of the Father. You are of and in the word of God. You know God. And that's why today... It does not matter, certainly in the kingdom of God, whether you, where you come from, what you look like, who you used to be, how rich, poor, or uh, much pigment of color you have in your skin, or what language you speak. What matters is if you have been transformed and translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light by faithful obedience to the gospel call, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Outside of that, that you are either in that or that, there's no, well, I'm halfway here, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. It's either all or nothing. And John addresses that here. That there are these two kingdoms, and you right now, and who he's writing to are those who are a part of God's kingdom, but he is reminding them that, hey, you are a part of God's kingdom. We sometimes forget that, unfortunately, the longer that we are alive and following Christ, 
we forget I am not representing just my name or a household's name or a church's name. I'm representing the kingdom of God. We are called ambassadors. An ambassador goes, he might not be the president or the king or the queen himself, but what he is is a representative. That's what you and I are. We are representing the kingdom of God. I want to turn for just a moment um, to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, the Gospel of John chapter 3. Same author writing down the account of Jesus and Nicodemus. John chapter 3 tells us what the kingdom of this world looks like. It's its system, its beliefs, its attitude. In verse number 18, the system, beliefs, and attitude of the kingdom of this world looks like this. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. That's what this world system looks like. If anyone out there today thinks that this world is getting better, you have blinded eyes. And as a matter of fact, there are a system that is taking place today, and it has been a system that has been placed, unfortunately, in our educational system for our young people, not just for a few short years, but rather for decades, that has been socially programming and giving our children the idea that they don't belong to their parents, they certainly don't belong to their faith belief, but they rather belong to the state, that the state has the rights and authority over them. That's not the case. It's not biblical. It's not right. And it's certainly not even logical. All right. It, but we move forward in this and we see in, in the kingdom of this world today has such a tied in to wanting to gain more and more and to control literally this entire world itself. The world system and belief and the way in which they are working about it is certainly anti-God, anti-Christian, anti-conservative, all those things. We see that happening. So why in the world would we love such a thing? Why would we want to be a part of a kingdom that goes against God's kingdom? You see, before we were in Christ, we were a part of that kingdom, whether you realized it or not. You might have been saved at a young age. You might have grown up in a good Christian home and got saved early on and, and never really did the bad things of this world. Praise God that he kept you from it by his grace. However, you were still yet before and without Christ, a part of that kingdom that was against God. To love the world, to be a part of such, it is to be, as we're going to find later on, at enmity with God, an enemy of him. It is that we cannot love the world and love the word. We cannot obey the system of the world and obey the system of the word. What God declares, what God decrees, what God expects, what God desires. Which one is better to serve, God or man? We naturally say, of course, in our spiritual uh, mindset, God, of course. However, what we have seen over the past several years is more and more uh, space, more and more land being given, if you will, in this spiritual struggle and fight. We are not called to love the world as if they're going to suddenly turn or change their mind around, it, it does not work that way. If we try to go on the inside and to 
you know, we'll just do like they do and eventually they'll come around. I call it as a, as a youth pastor, missionary dating, right? Missionary dating works like this. You might have even had a teenager. You might have been, you might have been that teenager that said, well, you know, they're really good looking and, and you know, they're, they're a good person. They just don't really love the Lord. And so I'm going to date them and eventually they'll, they'll come around, you know, right? It don't work that way. It, why? Because we become more and more like the world, the more in the world that we are. It is time that we take out the stakes that have tied us in this world for far too long. He says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Now, we are called specifically, according to 1 John chapter 2, verse 5 and 6, to live in and by God's system and standards. He says, but whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also to walk even as he walked. We are called to walk according to the word of the Lord. We are called to walk according to the way that Jesus walked, which is in submission to the word of God itself. For God's mission, for God's glory, God's purposes, under God's decrees, under God's expectations, not the world's. We're going to see in just a moment what verse 16 tells us. The world's expectations are wildly different. It is here and now only. It is what is here is here now, so live it up, enjoy it. You only live once, you're only young once, you're only this once or that, so go for it. I would say they are about that much right. You do only live once. You do only have today. However, you have this one life, this one moment, this one day to either fulfill the lust of the flesh or to live by the Spirit of God to give Him glory and honor. Knowing this, that you can choose one or the other, you are free to do so, but the outcome will be the same. You will stand before God. And the fact that you will stand before God should drive us away from loving the world and the things of the world and being tied down by its system and the way in which it orders and operates and to live in the kingdom of God. Why? Because one day we're going to. Right now it should just be practice. Church is just practice for heaven. Our living life outside in the world, it is to be practicing for the kingdom of God where we're going to be used by God for His glory and, and serving Him with all of that we are. We are to emulate Jesus in His life according to verse number 6 here. Not the way of the world. We are in it, not of it. Jesus said in His ministry, my kingdom is not of this world. You might see a bumper sticker that says the N-O-T-W, not of this world, right? That should certainly be our attitude. We are in this world because that's where we live physically, but yet we're already seated spiritually in heavenly places. Heaven is our home. We're just passing through. We're just pilgrims going through this place and time. But what is happening today in the temporary is meant for the eternal. We must be so eternally or heavenly minded that we are earthly good. Most of us have heard it said, I want to be so heavenly minded that I'm no earthly good. I don't want that. I want to be good while I'm here for God's glory and to demonstrate to this world, to this earth, to these created beings who don't know the Lord, that they are going to meet their maker one day and they must be prepared. To be prepared to meet your God. To know him. To go from the kingdom of this world, which as he's about to say, passeth away. The, the real verbiage of the Greek is, Literally passing away. 
It has literally been on hospice since sin came in. It has been dying since. As beautiful as a sunrise is, as beautiful as a sunset might be in the mountains and creation that we see today, it is nothing compared to a millisecond of beholding the glorious throne of God. Not even close. You can look at the moment that it goes from dark to light in the morning and watch the entire sunrise and just be in absolute awe. That'll take you a good hour, right, to watch the whole process. But not even a split second of God's glory and and, it will not even compare in comparison. I have a quote for you here. One commentator writes, The Christian is to love God and his brother or sister, according to verses 5 and 10. But he is not to love the world. And love is a fit subject for such commandment and prohibition because it is not an uncontrollable emotion, but the steady devotion of the will. The reason why we are enjoined not to love the world is because the love of the Father and love for the world are mutually exclusive. We are engrossed in the outlook and pursuits of the world which rejects Christ. It is evident that we have no love for the Father. Friendships with the world is hatred towards God, according to James 4.4. No one can serve two masters, Matthew 6.24, Luke 16.13. And if we cannot serve God and mammon, neither can we love the Father and the world. There is a great divide between us and the world, and there should be a great divide between our love and obedience to the world and our love and obedience to the Father, who has revealed himself through his divine word, through his divine and eternal coexistent Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, the revelation to us who has come, who has died, who lived a sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, bore our sins, became our sins. He who knew no sin, had ever even thought about doing sin, could even do sin, becomes sin, dies for us, pays the price, raised again to life, and he does not do those things so that way we would stay the same. And by the way, he doesn't do those things and have accomplished those things so that we would come to church and then stay the same either. If we come and we worship the Lord and we don't leave changed, something's missing and it's not what's happening around us. Right? It's something inward within us that is not quite right. Worship should change us. Why? Because worship is catching that millisecond glimpse of God's glory and praising Him for it. It is asking Him to show me your glory and being hidden by His own hand in the cleft of the rock and just seeing the back glow. And we don't even get that like Moses did because if we did, you and I would all be veiled up in here because of our glowing faces that have beheld God's glory. But yet meeting in church, it should look the same, shouldn't it? That we're changed by God's Word. We're changed by meeting with God's people. We're changed for the better by singing God's praises and dwelling on who He is and, and reflecting on it. I want to give to you now the character of the world. Verse number 16. For all that is in the world. He does not say for you know, mostly the world or, you know, it, it's mostly good, but there's some bad eggs. He doesn't say, you know, it's, it's a nice place, but sometimes bad stuff happens. He says for all that is in it. All here does actually mean all that is in it. He's all that is in the world. First of all, the lust of the flesh. I would say this, every sin that is committed is one of these three or a combination. It is going to be your lust of your flesh, the lust of your eyes, something that you've seen, or your pride of life. And you say, well, I'm not that prideful. Well, yeah, there you go. You did it, right? It's the person who says, 
you know, I tend to not be pretty prideful or, you know, I'm not as prideful as so-and-so. Well, congratulations, now you are, right? I'm the most humble person I know sort of thing, that mentality. There's not a one of us who does not have pride. Why? Because if we did not have pride, we would not sin. We have pride in the fact that it's our pride that drives us to sin because we think we can sin without God knowing or getting in trouble for it. We think somehow we can escape the divine hand or the divine gaze of our holy God who sees our, not just our actions but our heart and motive behind it. There is nothing more prideful than an ounce of sin in a man. He might be full of godliness and righteousness and might be full and, and cleansed by the blood of Jesus, but there is still yet nothing more treasonous or more prideful than one little ounce of sin. One little ounce of sin would have been enough to nail Jesus to the cross. So may we not think or be so prideful that I'm not prideful with my sin. It boils down to distrust, dissatisfaction, or being disillusioned with our view of God and His Word. We sin because, one, we either distrust God's Word and we think, well, maybe it doesn't quite mean that. Or maybe it doesn't apply to me because I'm saved. That's distrusting God's word. Two, dissatisfaction. How insane is it to think that the God who loves us despite our sinfulness and we yet somehow become dissatisfied with him? We would say, well, of course I'm not dissatisfied with God. Well, then why do we sin? We sin because we want to. We sin because we like it. And we sin because the reality is this, and this is what hurts, especially the preacher here. We sin in that moment because in that moment, we're more satisfied with our sin than we are satisfied with who God is. That's the reality of our sin. Third, we find that we can be disillusioned. We can have a disillusioned view of who God is and His Word. If you think that you can have too high view of Scripture or the holiness of God, then you don't know the holy God of Scripture. We can never have too high a view of God. And I would say this, though, on the other side, we do at some points in times have too low view of ourselves. And I mean that because there are times that we say after we've sinned, I've gone so far, there's no point in me praying anymore. I'm sure to be done with God. He, I'm sure he's done, done with me. But we say this, the scripture, John's already addressed this. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then He says, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. May we, not have, we will never have too high a view of God. But may we be careful to not have so low of a view of ourselves that we forget that it's that same God who is so high and exalted that He still condescended to love us and to save us and that He walks with us and died for us even knowing and becoming our sin itself. We remember the goodness of God's love. Now, the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh is this. It is the lust. It means craving, desire of passion. This is our inward dwelling sinful nature that naturally wants to please the flesh. All right, let me ask you this. Now, some of you might be smart and say, well, I like vegetables more than chocolate. Okay, that's fine. Pick something else. All right. If you have the choice, your last meal, all right, now, some of you might be spiritual. That's okay. I'll just trust that you're wrong. You're going to get either a plate full of nice, delicious carrots, which are fine. 
right? Maybe not last meal worthy. Side dish, maybe, right? Or you get all-you-can-eat dessert bar, right? You get your own ice cream fountain and chocolate cake and cookies as far as the eye can see for your last meal. Now, go ahead and make your pick, right? We're taking the carrots, aren't we? No, we're not. Why? Because our flesh wants what it wants. Our flesh wants naturally what is maybe not good, but what feels good, tastes good, and brings us happiness in that moment. Because if I know I'm going out of here, I ain't going chomping on a carrot, right? <laughs> I'm going out of here covered in chocolate sauce, right? That's how, I'm, that's how I'm leaving, right? You think about this. The lust of the flesh is this deep craving. And it's a deep craving for something that God would say is sinful, but we crave it because of distrust, dissatisfaction, or disillusionment with who God is and His Word. James 1.14 tells us, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away from his own lust and enticed. Notice that phrase, his own lust. It's his own. It's your own. It's my own. Nobody else's. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And yet, we can try to fill the flesh as much as possible, and we will never fully satisfy it, will we? Why? Because it has an insatiable appetite for destruction. But it doesn't know that. But if you keep feeding it, it will get fat, and it will get happy, lethargic, and it will grow to eventually hate God, because your flesh naturally does. But it is our spirit that we must walk in. Why? Because it's our spirit that drives us to the love of God. It's our spirit that drives us to faithful obedience. Secondly, we find the lust of the eyes. This is the things that outwardly please us inwardly. Long before adultery happens, there has been distrust, dissatisfaction, disillusionment of the heart. There has been a gaze with the eyes and a listening with the ears. The eyes and the ears are connected to the head, aren't they? Inside this big old head of ours, what do we have? Our brain. Where we think. Where we send our body into motion. Long before adultery happens, our eyes have seen and lusted. Our flesh has desired something greater and more because we say, will we deserve it? We'll make any sort of excuse. Where man wants sin, he will justify himself. All of us. Because let's not pretend we don't argue with ourselves before we commit sin. We know it's wrong. We do it anyways. We can convince ourselves in our own eyes. And then what happens? It goes and it becomes a thought long before. But it's those eyes, our senses and emotions that quickly lead us astray. We cannot count or our emotions, our eyes, the things that we see, taste, touch, hear, smell to determine what is true or not. Our emotions deceive us. There's a little children's song. I don't think I included it here. It used to go, oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Right? Be careful, little ears, what you hear. Be careful, little mouths, what you say. Be careful, little feet, where you go, and all those things. Why is that? Because it's the little things that cause the biggest and most egregious sins against God. Everything that we bring in our life, eyes, ears, everywhere our feet go, it will affect us. The reason why we have so many who are walking around who are young today desensitized to pornographic images, desensitized to violence, 
desensitized to everything, where they can't process emotion and even become numb to it, but yet they're still driven by their flesh to try to fill that void and gap that they'll never, ever, ever, ever fill in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Pride is a root of sin, but it is also a confidence in the things and the life that we have built or enjoy. We are not called to take so much pride in the things that we are, the things that we do, right? We might have proud moments about something that you can make arguments about bring, being proud of, of a child making a good decision or getting a good report card or being proud of something that you might have created. We must be careful, and yet still, a little pride goes an awful long way. We have this pride of life that is naturally in us that has a pride and a drive for the temporary. We're to live for the eternal, not the temporary, which is full of sin, this world. The outcome of the world and the word, though, verse 17, will be done. And the world passeth away. It's literally passing away as we talked about it. It's sin cursed. It's not getting any better. There's no magical formula or potion that's going to turn things around. Cruz writes, all that is antithetical to God and his grace is passing away. It is doomed. There is no future in worldliness. And yet the world keeps spinning and the world keeps sinning and the church keeps getting more and more like the world and we fall more and more in love with the lust of our flesh and eyes and the pride of life and yet we don't even realize it because we might carry our Bibles and come to church faithfully. We must be oh so careful. Your rooting and grounding in the things of this world will probably not be seen on a Sunday morning. They will probably not even be seen in the way that you dress or even that you carry your Bible to church or whatever it might be. It will be seen in your thought life. It will be seen in your heart life. It will be seen in the things that you convince yourself of. It will be the way in which you view God and the way that you view others, the unseen. We find this, though, that our identity is not found in the temporary passing away world and the lust that is thereof but rather he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Our identity is found in the eternal. One, the eternal word of God, which is from the beginning, as John has emphasized. Two, the eternal Savior, who is eternally our advocate and propitiator according to what he's already written in chapters one and two. Third, our identity is found in the eternal commands that we obey so that we may have eternal fellowship with one another in Christ our Lord. Today, for sake of time, I, I won't be able to turn to Colossians chapter 3, but it begins basically by saying, don't live or look or dwell on the temporary. Think, above, think on the things above. Think on the eternal things, the weighty matters, the important matters, the things that count for eternity. You say, preacher, what, <clears throat> what counts for eternity? Everything. Your heart's motive counts for forever. May we let go of this world. May we focus on the eternal. Live for the eternal. Put off the temporal. Put on the eternal. Do all for the eternal glory of God. Love the word. Hate the world and the things in it. But may we preach the word in the world. What the world needs is not more worldly believers or more people to justify their sin or give them reason world needs is the preaching of the word of God that's not just the 
preacher's job, if you will. We do our preaching outside of these walls with the people we hang around, the things that we do, the things that we say, how we act, how we behave, how we conform to the world or not. It is everyone in here's job to proclaim the word of God to this lost world in it. I can't fit all of your neighbors, friends, and family inside this building. If I could, that'd be great. Bring them sometime. I can't reach them like you can. May we have a heart that hates the world but loves it like God did to tell them the truth and love so that they too may know God and may know the eternal weighty things of who God is. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and love towards us. I pray, God, that you would now prepare our hearts for this worship service. And Lord, that today everything would be said and done, sung and spoken and preached today, God, would bring you glory and honor. Lord, help us to let go of this world and to cling tight to the word. God, I pray that today would be the word that would impact our hearts and our lives. Lord, may we have our hearts prepared for this time and what you have for us. We love you. We thank you once more because it is you who has first loved us. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we'll take a pause for the calls. Any gentlemen that want to come in and pray, we've got